1 Samuel. If you'll turn to 1 Samuel in chapter 15, um, where there's something I want to bring up, and that is at the next hour, if you're uh, so free, and uh, we are offering a class, Art Horses Facilitating, the next two weeks. It's going to be a two-week class on where the Bible came from, how um, the origins of it, how it was put together. And so he's just going to be walking through that. So if you've ever wondered, everybody's, anybody's ever asked you, hey, how did the Bible come together? How do we know it is Holy Scripture? Over the next two, week, two weeks, Art Horse will be going through that at the 1030 hour. And as well, we also have leadership training for, right, for our children's ministry as well. So thank you very much, Pat, for doing that. So that is going to be uh, at the next hour. Now, <clears throat> Lord willing... This throat is not going to be an issue because I prayed about it. last week. If you remember, I started, and you probably thought, "What, what, what demon is channeling through this room through me right now?" It's just like I don't know the allergies and that this coming year. So if you see me kind of <laughs> clear my throat or take water, um, just bear with me. Especially the first hour. Last week, the second hour, it had no problem. But you guys are the trial run, right? Um, and uh, so let's go. This. Let me let me just pray for me real quick. And we're going to jump into First Samuel. There's a lot of scripture, but man, this is a lot of great stuff. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, please speak through me. Lord, I pray that you just hold my throat strong in this time. That Lord, I'm able to uh, get this message across without any sense of distraction. That we will walk away from here stronger in your truth. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Um, I was just talking to Brett Smith in the back. This service is just kind of keeps growing, doesn't it? You know. So thank you guys again for being here. And uh, before you know it, we're going to have AC issues in here. <laughs> this was always the cool service to come to. Uh, if you look at First Samuel, um, as we go to these verses, there are going. There's primarily going to be two characters today. I always like to identify who the people that we're going to be studying are going to be. And in this case, it's still a continuation of. King Saul, who's king over Israel, who the people wanted a king, there was a prophet named Samuel. And so the prophet was told by God to go, and, and this, well, this king was going to approach him, and, and he was going to anoint him as the king. Now, what's interesting is do not lose that word uh, anointed one, the, uh, to be anointed. Um, actually come from the word Messiah, meaning Messiah, the anointed one. So the very fact is, is the Messiah was the anointed one. There was also anointed ones, priests, judges, kings were anointed ones. So what's great, it gives you chills when you hear the Messiah, the anointed one, he was the ultimate judge, the king of kings, and the priest of priests. So it's really a culmination so of, of the majesty of Jesus that's going to be coming into play here in, in, a, in, in a while. But for now, these men, these kings, have very important positions. Let's pick up, look at verse 1 of chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent to me to anoint you, king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did in opposing them, or Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep camel and donkey. Those are hard verses. If you ever go through uh, scripture, 
if you're discipling a new believer or even a non-believer and you get to these verses and that guy or gal looks at you and says, how on earth can a loving God ever advocate the destruction and the killing of an entire race of people, an entire tribe of people? One thing I've learned in my life is I never answer why questions. Don't. Don't try to. Run away from that. Anybody who tries to answer, this is why, but I can give some background as to what's going on. I can also say this. God was totally aware of what these people did a long time ago. I'm going to show you in just a second what they did. What God is trying to do is eradicate Not a problem, but an obstacle that's going to be, just going to do, if it's in place, is going to do everything it can do to stop this Jewish Messiah. Who were these people? They were a war raiding and ravaging race. Israel had left the land of Egypt. After 40 years, they're they're going into Israel. They are walking in wounded. They were walking in battered, and this tribe pounced on Israel when they were in their weak condition. Not only did they do that, look at what was written in Deuteronomy earlier in the Bible, Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19. This is what God is, this is what Scripture is saying very clearly about what should be done with the Amalekites. Remember, or Amalekites, remember what Amalek did to you on the way you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you, he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall not blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, and you shall not forget What's interesting, if you ever notice God chastising people, and hundreds of years later, it comes to be God doesn't forget those things. It's not like, oh, well, God forgot that. God's let that aside. In this case, God has spoken years, years before and says this, do not forget what they just did to you. The Israelites had to be pouring into this region thinking, I can't believe what happened. We went through all that. We're supposed to be delivered. I mean, we always learn about Pharaohs chasing the Jews, but we never hear about this attack on the, on, on the nation of Israel as they're moving away from Egypt. Now, you've got to remember, who lagged behind? The elderly. Those with small children. The wagons of the wounded and, and, and the mounts carrying all those who couldn't keep up. And so this particular evil tribe took the lowest hanging fruit of opportunity and decided to wreak havoc and kill and destroy those who were in the weakest condition of Israel. And God says this, don't you ever forget what happened to you on that day. And when I establish peace with you, when I give you your land, you are going to rise up and you're going to take care of them. That's the best I can do. And I can also say this, this is a long-suffering God. This is a long-suffering Lord who looked at this, and this is years and years and years after this incident. And God has said, I am, I, I, 
he, he held back judgment then. God could have done anything. If he could part a sea and the Israelites can outrun the Egyptian army and Pharaoh, he can certainly handle this group of people. So um, I just wanted you to understand that not only is it the nation of Israel, but it is this. This group of people would have stood in the way, this is important, of the path of redemption for you and me. Remember, all of Israel was being buffered and being built up for one reason. We have to know this. We, it's very important. That is the arrival out of heaven of, who, of Jesus. As the begotten son of heaven is going to be ushered into the nation of Israel. This is the entire, and that wasn't even the end. The end story is the redemption of you and I. So when these people are chased and these people are hunted down, it has everything to do with here sitting in Creekside Church and Christians all over the world and those who are seeking to be saved and those who the Lord is seeking to be saved. So is that important? Does everybody get that part? That, pay, that area of redemption is, is the reason for this. Now, their annihilation is going to be their consequence. In, in churches, uh, the word consequence isn't used a whole lot, but I think we would want to say that there are consequences to our actions. And this is the consequences of theirs. Pick up verse 4. So Saul summoned the, peop- the people and numbered them in Teliam, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. Hey, by the way, last week, do you remember how many men he started out with? How many did Saul have? 600? Yeah, it's 600. Now well, he's up to 200,000 men and 10,000 from, an, from another region of Judah. He has built up his army again. Verse 5, And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, This is a group of people, by the way, who are the Kenites. This is a group of people who are very friendly to Israel. They were not Jews. He looks at them. He says to the, the, the group of Kenites, Go, depart. Go down from among you to the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. By the way, verse 7, for those of you who like to take notes on this, Havilah is is a city yet to be discovered. They don't know where it is. As with any city that was kind of unknown since the 1940s, archaeological expeditions have validated a lot, most of them. So this is just one of those cities we're waiting to find out. Oh, this is where it was. But it's a a big distance. Verse 8, he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, it would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Okay, what did Saul tell him to do? To all these animals? Kill them. What has he done? He's kept them. He's preserved them. He has these animals in place. And worse than that, who does he have ca- captive here? Who's that? the king. You're going to take the king, you're going to bring him in in a captive sense, and by the way, Agag, in case you're wondering, have I seen this name before, mentioned in Numbers, this would be, um, it's either one or the other. There's two thoughts. It's like Pharaoh is a name for many different pharaohs in Egypt. Uh, It would be like um, 
it'd be Agag was just a, a title giving to the uh, the king of Amalek. So the, it could be Agag one, Agag the second, Agag. You just can't catch me. So if you ever see another one mentioned, it's not him. So here he he takes the best sheep, the best oxen, the best animals. He takes the king alive. There's two parts of this message. The part about what happens when leadership goes awry and also the part about God's view. So we can look at this from man's view and wonder, why would people do this when they know the order was to kill all the oxen? My first thought is this. People will buy into the leader before they buy into the vision. People are going to buy into the leader before they buy into the vision. Pure and simple. We, get, we can lay out vision. But if the, at, the end of the time, at the end of the day, people are going to look at the leader. In this particular case, the people are looking at the leader and, and they're following him all knowing he's being disobedient. Why? Because they're getting exactly what they want. Verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. And he cried out to the Lord all night. Verse 11. I have regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Now, this is a verse that you and I can sit there and scratch our heads all day on, but uh, we can talk about <clears throat> we can talk about what it means to have regret. The very fact that God is a God who is omniscient, He knows everything, and Him to have regret. The reality is, the word regret is sorrowful. No matter if you change the meaning. No matter if it wasn't the meaning sorrowful, even if let's just say this verse right up here said at the best translation, God says, "I am sorrowful that I ever made him king." Sorrowful regret to me in my mind. I'm still scratching my head, thinking, "How could God, who knows everything, be sorrowful about anointing a man king?" Backstory: Remember, it was the people that wanted a king. It was God's heart that was broken to hear the people say, we want a king. As if going to a father and saying, I want a dad. And he listens to the people and gives them what they want. This is the power of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. That you and I, if we're not careful, can be looked at one day and said, and before you go walk out of here thinking in a, you're walking out defeatist attitude, get ready, there's good news at the end, that God very well could look at a leader in a church and say, I regret the day I ever made that person a pastor. I regret the day I ever gave power and privilege to this person to do something because they didn't do it. This is a haunting verse to reckon with. It's a verse you put in your mind and think this is, it says, this means this is not a God who just gives us giftings and abilities and turns his head and walks away. He has expectations of you and I. Now, as the news wasn't bad enough, Samuel gets word that Saul did something else. So not only has Saul heard that, um, heard that uh, from God to say that I'm so disappointed, look at verse 12. 
Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And he, it was told Samuel, ready, here it is. Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. Samuel now gets a, a messenger that comes in and tells him, um, yeah, I know you're supposed to meet Saul here, or soon. But he's not. He, he built a monument to himself on the battlefield. How could Saul... Do you remember Saul, the man looking for donkeys? This man, this humble man, is now building a monument to himself. Not to honor God. Not to say this is what God did in this place. He's building a monument to himself. Um, Abraham Lincoln said this. Nearly all men, nearly all men can stand adversity. But if you want to test a man's character, give him power. The power that some men get in women, rightfully so as well, the power that comes to their mind overwhelms their senses, overwhelms their loyalties, overwhelms who they once were. Have you ever met anybody that you knew them in their humility, then all of a sudden they got a position, what happened? Different person. I used to always joke around because I would get, as a college minister, I was going, I would have to be interviewed consistently by federal agents because my students were going, as they graduated, they would get security clearances. And so federal agent would come in and show the badge and, you know, walk in and say, let me just go and ask some questions about this person. I would go through. And after a while, I got to know these agents who would come in. I said, so many college kids. Well, I said, hey, can I, let me borrow the badge real quick. And I walked over to my ministry assistant. And I looked at her and I flashed the badge. She said, just hold my calls. And, uh, and I remember she looked at me and she said, Are you, get out of here. And the, and the agent's in there laughing. I'm thinking, this is the joke because I knew I couldn't handle power. The sheer fun of what it would be like to walk around with a badge. I can't imagine. I can't imagine what it would be to have the power that some people have. I don't know, but I look back and I think of a lot of people I knew that were really neat people. And they got a position. They changed. I don't know if I'm not one of those people. I know I was. We like to think we're not guilty. But I think we look within, we have to ask ourselves, have we become one of those people? And so all of a sudden you think, well, I've never built a monument to myself. But how many people build a legacy for themselves, build an impression of themselves, not caring what others what, what, what happens to other people? This is a perfect example of how you and I can be a God. Some, we could fall in the same way Saul did. So, verse 13. A lot of verses here, but bear with me. This, by the way, reads out like, as we keep going, this is going to unfold like a movie right in front of you. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, Blessed be to you, to the Lord, for I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Did he? No. Verse 14. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And Saul said, 
Well, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Hold that verse right here. There's a few things in here. First of all, Saul walks up in the encampment, oxen, sheep, everything, eh, they're all going to town, blattering, mooing. He says, what is going on? What have you done? He walks up to Samuel. Samuel greets him. Oh, blessed be the name of the Lord. You're here. I mean, what? uh, the, the, The hypocrisy doesn't stop here. Now, I didn't underline these, but did you see this? They have brought them from the Amalekites. What does he start doing? Starts blaming other people. That is the very first thing pride does. And hypocrisy does. You start looking at other people. Why is the business failing? Well, they just don't get it. Why is the church falling apart? Well, they just don't understand. Why is the family falling apart? Well, they're all wrong. And so you start to see they, they, they is a problem. But there's also another shift in the change in focus, did you catch the word? Uh, da, 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 da. They brought them from Malachites. Maybe it's maybe this is verse fourteen. Let me see. Um, um, that's fifteen. Isn't it? To sacrifice, oh, to the Lord your God. This is the first time the Lord your, the word your, has substituted the word our God. There is now some sort of division in Saul's heart where he's now saying, oh yeah, the Lord, your God. And so there's an interesting shift in that. And so he goes on to read um, in next verse, in verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. Now, think about this. Samuel walks out to Saul I'm sorry, Saul walks out of Samuel, starts telling him, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Samuel stops him and says, what have you done? I hear all these animals going on. What have you done? He starts trying to reiterate and start talking in the, the most profound word we could ever use in the midst of somebody going off in some diatribe of nonsense is the one great Greek word, stop. 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 God sees disobedience differently than I think you and I do. We see disobedience as continued sin and failure. When the reality is this, it's deeper than disobedience. Disobedience is often the sour fruit of what's going on in our own heart. There's a deeper issue. That is why it is important when people go to counselors. Sometimes I'll meet with people and I'll look at them and I'll say, this is as far as I could go because there's a deeper issue and I don't know how to get to that deeper issue. But there are people who are trained in how to peel the layers of the onion back to find out what's going on. And oftentimes at a counseling, somebody will come through and they'll say, you have no idea how grateful I am that all of a sudden talking in the whim of a moment the counselor picked up on something that's been affecting me my whole life. So oftentimes, disobedience is just a fruit of what's happening, a sour fruit of our, in, in the depths of our heart, an indicator of what the state of our heart. Verse 17. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, 
Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction of the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, Watch this. This gets really... My, what a wicked web we weave when we first attempt to deceive. Here it is, verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the uh, the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction. Why? To sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Wow. There he keeps going. Verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Is in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, than to listen to the fat of rams. What does that mean? Obeying the voice of the Lord... Behold, it's better to obey than a sacrifice. Obeying in the smallest little way is sometimes so much godlier than the idea of sacrificing so that your image will be better. Well, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've donated this so I can put my name on it. Sacrifice so many times these days has a train and, that comes along with it with that locomotive and it says this look what I've done someone smarter than me I don't know who said this said this the submissive path of obedience does not offer self praise or self glory but it does offer joy there's something about being on the other side of obedience when you hear the word obedience what do you think oh no it's a chore it's a toil but when you're on the other side of it there's something fresh about it Verse 23. There's a word coming up here. It's a very important word. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So, divination, uh, if this is a big word, and it's as big as idolatry, what does it mean? Divination means this. It is seeking to know what to do in a way that ignores the word and counsel of God. That, is, that, that means you and I are very much guilty of this. How many times have you and I done something when we know it wasn't God's intention for us to do? It wasn't what God intended for us to do. And so what Samuel is saying to Saul is what you've done, what you've done is you have wrecked what power meant to be. Power is meant to be used for the good, not for the bad. G.K. Chesterton and another gentleman were having a a talk in a restaurant. And they were talking about uh, the one uh, G.K. Chesterton said, power and authority is different. The other man said, no, power and authority is the same thing. This is the same thing. And G.K. Chesterton told them this. He said, if a rhinoceros 
were to enter this restaurant now. There is no denying he would have great power here, but I should be the first to rise and assure him that he has no authority whatsoever. The reality is authority and power are two separate things. Somebody can have all the power they want, but not have authority in anything. Because there's not, there, sometimes there's no respect. Or sometimes God isn't even given them that authority. You can meet powerful people all day long who have no sense of authority from God. And so as, as a lot of new believers or young people assume power and authority is the same thing. Why would God put so much power in someone's life who's not a believer, they would say. It's because of two different things. Pharaoh was a powerful person. Did he have authority over Israel? No, not at all. Verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, Wow, look at this admission. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I have feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Now, catch this real quick before we go into verse 26. I want you to picture this. This would have been a royal tent, a large tent. We obviously know there's corrals on the outside because the animals are everywhere on the outside. He walks up. Samuel walks into this tent. The royal court is all there. He's watching Saul defending himself. But now you're watching... All of a sudden, Saul gets it. Saul is, I've sinned. What have I done? What have I done? He says, please, and Samuel's walking out the door. He says, please come back. Please come back. You've got to come back. And we see here in verse 25, now therefore, please pardon my sin and return to me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Who's he talking to? He's talking about God, the God, the glory of Israel. He says, the the Amalekites are better than you. For at least they fight for what they believe in. How could you do this? And so he, when he, when he tears his robe, he gives an indicator. He says, just as you've torn this robe, you've also torn yourself away from the nation of Israel. What you, you've done this, you were anointed king. Now keep in mind, don't let this escape. Think about God's heart. When the people said, we want a king, and God was their king. Imagine Samuel. Don't leave him out. This is important. Samuel had a position of great importance. He was the spiritual leader of Israel. And so Samuel never mentioned in here to God, God, why are are you appointing a king? I'm here. I'm a prophet. And so here he goes and anoints this man. And this man is going to be wicked. He's going to be a failure. And Samuel the whole time is looking at a man who's half the man he is, 
if even that, a man who had all the necessary power and authority given to him is now given to a man who doesn't even understand it. Sometimes, it doesn't say anything in here, and Sam doesn't cry about it, he doesn't whine about it, but I think it's worth bringing up to think, poor Samuel. This was a guy that he gave the title to, and it goes to show something. Life isn't fair. It's not. I remember working at the bank, and I just remember, I remember um, being in a place where I was, a, I was working with a team. We were hired by this consulting agency. And so there were like six of us, and we're all consultants. What does a consultant do? I still don't know, but we're just consultants. And so um, one of the members of my team, I think he always wanted to be a lawyer or something, he looked up in, in a contract, and he found a loophole. And he went to the bank, who they I'm really good friends with. He said to the bank manager, look at this, I've got a loophole. You can hire us directly for half the price. Now, you get hired half the price, but he also gets paid about three times as much. Because he just be he's a self-contracted individual, right? He doesn't have to go through a big consulting agency. And they all came to me and they're like, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And I'm like, uh-uh, I can't, you can't, I can't do that. I can't. Oh, by the way, I hired that team. And what did they do? They all left. And I would walk in every day for the next two and a half years and look at people making three times what I made. And I brought everyone of them on. Don't think for a second was I not looking at that and going, this is wrong. Don't think for a second I was in sin to say, this is not fair. But don't think for a second that I thought this was all that I lived for either. For them, that's as far as they'll go. This may be the best they ever have. Now I look back, and I'm thinking, first of all, you walked up and said, one day you're going to be a minister. (laughs) There's no way. Now I look back and think, thank you, Lord, for everything that I thought was unfair. Why? Because authority is not in my predictions and what I feel is right. Authority comes from heaven. Verse 30. How does Saul respond? He says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. A key point not to be missed here. Samuel certainly suffered much. And he was disappointed, but he returned with Saul to go pray. A man who had replaced him, it was inferior in every way, and what does he do? He goes back and he worships with him. Samuel's not done. Then Samuel said, This, by the way, is pretty graphic. Um, Samuel says, Bring Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, This is like 
a gladiator speech here, folks. He says, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Some of your Bible says he, um, he's, what does it say? Hewed. Hewed. Monroe, I don't know what hewed means, but if you came after me and wanted to hew me, I would run. He hacks Agag to get... Now, I will say this, and when you study, it says he walked up cheerfully. It almost looks up like he's, he's arrogant. Oh, you know, here I am. Surely the bitterness of death is past. Actually, there's um, when you study this, cheerfully can mean many things. It, it means he was stumbling his feet, he was tripping over his words... We don't know. You you would think it would say cheerfully. If it's cheerfully, you would think it. But in any case, he came through there with a lot of emotion. Verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to the house of Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. There it is again. He regretted. You and I have to be careful that for everything God has done in an amazing way in our church, we don't stand one day and say, so God simply says, I regret what I ever gave Creekside. We must live under that fear. We would not ask you to fear anything that we would not fear. We, as a matter of fact, when you get up here and you say I'm a minister of, uh, of the gospel, you have to live in almost double fear. Because Why? Because God has given us a position of being able to exegete and talk about the word of God to you. It's a big deal. And so there's a lot of times I sit there and I have questioned in my own life, did God regret me ever walking into ministry? When I had a low spot and a dark spot in my place, was I that guy? And I thought I fulfilled that role completely. But you know what's amazing? Is there were chances of repentance. And Saul missed it. Saul is not only going to lose his dynasty, he's not only going to lose his character. I think what's worse is he lost a godly friend. There's nothing more painful than that. When David appears in a scene, Saul is going to not only have lost his godly friend, he's going to lose all self-control and any good sense that he has. When David comes in the scene, you're going to see the erratic behavior of Saul over the next month, two months probably, of the of, of erratic behavior that doesn't make sense. And here's some thoughts that I have. I don't have them up here, but here it is. We put fear, we put the fear of man in the place of the fear of God. And you know we're no different than Saul. We so many times put the fear of man in, in, in place of the fear of God. Saul was seeking more the approval of men than he was God in that moment. And if we're not careful, we'll do the same thing. Secondly, we elevate pleasure among, uh, bef- above the pleasure of God. We think, I'm going to do this because why it makes me happy. Can you imagine waking up in the mindset of what will make God happy today? Most of us, most of us live a Christianity that says this, what will make God less disgusted of me today? But imagine if we walk forward, with what we do to make God happy with today? Thirdly, we consult the wisdom of self instead of being satisfied with the will of God. We are not the best counselors for ourselves. We're not. Uh, Mona Pappy, she goes to second service. 
she said something one time, and I type things down. I put my phone. And people say something. I think it's profound to me. She said, um, uh, "It's usually a. It's re- when I spend time with, too much time with me. It's usually a bad thing. You and I are our own worst counselors. Be careful to not put too much authority in yourself. We come together." Every week for a reason. Here it is. Why do we come to church? Every week. God is good, the devil's bad. I mean, is the message ever change? The reason we come together every week is to dethrone yourselves and dethrone every other voice that is in your life that is attempting to bring you down and to reestablish the only one on a throne that we stand a chance to make purpose out of our life. That is why we come here. To dethrone who we are. 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive, our, forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I close with this. In your mind, if we're not careful, when you say the, when you say hard words like sin, negative thought. When you say words like obe- obedience, negative thought. You know what we start thinking of? Failure. The reality is, we live, again, I say this all the time, we live on the other side of the cross. We, you and I, have been given not a king, not a prophet. We've been given the Messiah, the anointed one, who has come to judge all of our sins. And as a believer in him, they are forgiven. They are over. And so here's what's different about you and I when it comes to obedience. We feel like a failure. Don't. Obedience is not some kind of a, uh, God is not some kind of a water trough where we have a human bucket brigade coming in to offer, well, dump in the sacrifices and dump in the sacrifices. This is what I've done, as if he needs it. God simply says this, take that mentality of that bucket and come to me. I'm not just a well, I'm a mountain spring, a waterfall of ever-flowing strength and power and purpose. You bring your empty bucket to me and I will fill you. He is not wanting your obedience to be without him. That simple self-given sacrifice. That is building a monument to you. We still don't get it in the end. We still keep thinking, oh, but I need to sacrifice. I need to sacrifice in my sense of obeying. By simply saying that, we're building a monument. Look how godly I am. Look how wonderful I am. Look how pure I am. Look how holy I am. He says, you bring you to me. And I will give you all you need. Don't come to him perfect. Come to him just as you are. He says, I'm going to give you everything. When you go to that water spring, you're going to notice something. Obedience becomes this. Not what you've done. 
it becomes an effort and a drive and a desire to taste and see that the Lord really is good. And he is. Folks, if you've never received the Lord as your Savior and do not know the power of this transforming authority, what better plan do you have? Trust in him. Ask the person that brought you or come to one of us and simply say, I want to know what it means to be saved, what it means to receive that kind of power. I pray you do that. And if you're a believer, I would say this. Ask yourself, what is driving your sense of obedience? Sacrifice for others to notice? Sacrifice to make yourself better and pronounce your own self? any? No. Ask yourself, have you obediently just shown up and said, Lord, I have nothing but an empty bucket and I need you to fill it and show me and meet that sweet taste that only the Lord provides. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity we have of coming closer to you. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of opening your word. And I pray, Lord, that these words convict us and change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, if you'd stay right there, David Green, come down here if you